You're listening to Think, Bank, Fun, a podcast about building thinking classrooms and teaching math. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Kyle here. Really excited to have Megan and Dean together with me today because we have a pretty awesome interview lined up for you. We're welcoming Peter onto the podcast, and he needs no introduction because he's the entire reason we're here, why we have this podcast in the first place, and really has transformed a lot of our classrooms here in Regina, in our school division, and obviously across the entire world. So welcome, Peter. We're really happy to have you. Um, what have you been up to lately? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's always great talking to the three of you. What have I been up to lately? I was, well, I'm sitting in Little Rock, Arkansas right now. I'm doing two, two days of work with teachers here. Tuesday, Wednesday. Tuesday is going to be cross-curricular, which is, I'm, I'm really loving these days. And then Wednesday's mass. Just got here last night from Oslo. I was in Norway. They just released the Norwegian version of the book wow. this week. So the publisher had sort of an event around that, and I was there for that. And prior to that, I was in Warsaw, where they had just released the Polish version of the book. So again, I was there for, for that. And then before that, I was in New York City, downtown, Manhattan. Yeah. Again, get working air, with get air miles. Oh, yeah. There's no shortage of air miles. That <laughs> there's, a, there's a thinking task in here, I bet you, somewhere. Oh, there is. <laughs> there, there is. You, you mentioned the book, Peter, and how it's being translated across the world. I think it's been out two and a half years or so now. And the research even longer than that. Have you been surprised by how well the book's been received in your work, you know, across the world? Oh, oh yeah. It's every day. It's surprising. And in fact, I was, <laughs> my wife said to me yesterday or two days ago, she says, so you think they're ever going to contact you from New Zealand? She wants to go to New Zealand. And I said, I don't know. It's, I, I have no sense if that's getting there. You know, it's gotten into Australia. There's, it's, it's actually being printed in Australia now to cut down on shipping costs. And uh, and then lo and behold, yesterday I got an email from New Zealand. So it's uh, yeah, I'm always I'm always surprised when it's reaching into corners of the world where I have never been. Right, like like it makes sense that it exists and it's popular in Regina because I've spent a lot of time in Regina, and it, and and then I'm I'm not surprised that it gets popular in places like Chile because I've spent a lot of time in Chile, but. Or, or Norway, but it's when all of a sudden I receive in the mail a translation into Turkish. And I'm like, I've, I've never done a presentation in Turkey on this topic. So it's, um, yeah, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. And uh, I find that surprising. Yeah, that's so cool Like to hate. Well, and like even right before this, there was a pr professor I was talking to from Australia, of all places, talking about your like work in um, okay. K-2 like in classrooms. And I was like, it's just crazy. It's just everywhere. However, it has been like three years. So I guess I, one thing I like want to know is like, what's new in the thinking classrooms? It's been three years. Oh, what's new? Um, there's always new stuff. Okay, so, you know, there's this Building Thinking Classroom conference coming up at the end of June down in mm -hmm. Franklin, yes. Indiana. And um, I've, I'm doing two keynotes there. And one, this, the, the first keynote is going to be looking back on, like, how did we get here? From May 2014, when I gave my first ever Building Thinking Classroom presentation at a conference to now presenting at a, at a building thinking classroom conference <laughs> and what was the journey and, and how has thinking classroom evolved and so on in that time. And then the second keynote is going to be, where do we go from here? So, so what's new and exciting and so on and so forth. So I would say the thing that's newest and most exciting for me is the new stuff on the lesson closure. Um, and, and, you know, you, you've all been in workshops with me where we've talked about that, the closing off of the lesson, right? The importance of the consolidation, the importance of then having the students do meaningful notes and check your understanding questions and how, how these are often it's perceived as, Oh good. This is a time where students get to work individually, right? It's not that it is that of course, but they, they tend not to work individually. They, they tend to work more of in a modality I call on their own together. But the exciting stuff about that is just how, 
how it's helping transition that collective knowing and doing to the individual knowing and doing. Um, but the really exciting part is what's absolutely brand new. And I, when I say brand new, I mean like there is stuff that is six weeks new. Um, so, so yeah. So do you want me to talk a little bit about it? Yeah. Pencils like ready. Come on, man. Let's get going. Okay. So consolidation. Um, one of the things that a lot of teachers have talked about is how challenging consolidation is and how much time it takes and how little patience the students have for the consolidation when you're trying to draw it out and it's, and it's, you're trying to go deep and you're trying to explain things and you're wanting, you're wanting to pull things from the board. And, and this is all true and it's all really worth pushing through all that. And it's, but sometimes it just doesn't work to do the type of consolidation that, that we do when we're doing a really rich task. So sometimes a consolidation, for example, if we're doing these thin slicing activities where the students are just tearing through task after task after task after task, there isn't a lot to consolidate from the student work, right? Like often what the students are putting on the board isn't evidence of their thinking. Their thinking is is embedded within patterns and it's within within dialogue and discourse. And what hits the board is often not very representative of all of that. So, you know, we can run around with a red mark and try to box things in, but the students aren't leaving the kinds of traces that we need to elevate the discourse for the consolidation. That's part of it. The other part of it is if we try to do that sort of classic consolidation from the bottom when we're asking students, to, you know, so what do you think this group is doing here? And everyone's looking at you like you've lost your mind because like it's so obvious what they're doing. And like that, 20 like minutes ago, right? Like it was like yeah. so like long ago because they've gone through like so much. old news. Yeah. Like, yeah, old hats. Yeah. They don't talk about it anymore. Yeah, we got this. Um, and there, and often the teacher is met with silence when you do that because the, not because the students don't know because they're trying to figure out what it is you're asking for because the answer to the question you're asking is just too obvious. Um, so playing around with what can consolidation look like in those settings, in those spaces where things are moving fast, where what is happening on the boards is not really representative of the thinking that's going into it, and where the students have moved so far down the trajectory that it's really, it, it's really almost pointless to consolidate some of the things. Um, so a new form of consolidation we've played with, and I think you've seen me do this before, which is where instead of going from board to board to board, I'll write up three questions on the board. So we'll just write three questions on the board, but they'll be in a weird order, right? And then the teacher says, I put three questions up here. I put up three tasks, but I think I got them in the wrong order. Talk amongst yourselves, what should the order be and why? And so the students start talking about the three tasks and then the teacher calls their attention and says, okay, so, so what should be the order? Well, the second one should be first and the third one should be second. The first one should be third. Okay, why? And then they're articulating all of these things and what they're doing is they're signaling the what it is that constitutes a difference in the nature of the tasks. Um, because when we're thin slicing, it's, it's not just slight variations on a theme. There's these sort of types where we move from one type of task to another, right? We move from adding two-digit numbers where no regrouping is necessary to all of a sudden regrouping is necessary. So that isn't just slightly harder than the one before it. It's actually a totally different type of task. And the students be can become aware of that difference when you compare and contrast three different tasks. And in doing this and them articulating and giving voice to this, it's it. those are the things we really want to bring to the surface in that consolidation. And that's, it's a very efficient way to consolidate. Okay, so now we, okay, so what's your, okay, well, let's do the first one now. The one that you have declared is first. What should, what can I do that isn't going to require too much thinking? Like, where's a place to start? And they'll tell you, well, can I do the same thing on the next task? And they're like, yep, how about the third one? No, you got to do it differently on the third one. So by by going back and forth like this, like what is it that I can do on this task? Can I do it on the next one? Why can't I do it on that one? Getting them to articulate these things is bringing to the surface. It's giving voice. It's giving name 
to the, the salient features of what it is that they're doing. Whereas while they were in that modality of just doing, these things almost had no vocabulary. They had no words because, and they weren't comparing and contrasting so much. They weren't really looking at quite task 15 and comparing it to task 11 as to what was the difference. They just noticed that 15 was slightly different from 14 and so on and so forth. So this is sort of a step back and allows the students to, to pull some salient features out and to, for the teacher to help facilitate that discussion. But more than anything, it's really an efficient, quick, and an engaging way to have the students consolidate in those thin slicing experiences. Did you want to talk a little bit about that before I go on to the next one? Yeah. The one thing that I like noticed is that like that sets up students for the notes very well, right? Because it's kind of having them look at like which questions are sufficient, which and like which are not sufficient. So could you add on that, I guess? Because that's yeah. something else new. Yeah. So it, like like I said, what it's doing is it's giving those sort of salient features and giving names to it, which definitely is going to set them up for the meaningful notes. Um because as a class, we're actually having discussion about what's going to go into their notes at this point. Mm-hmm. And it actually sets them up for the check your understanding questions too. Because in a way, what we're doing is we're leaning into that mild, medium, spicy, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But it's it's a really nice way to consolidate. It's quick. I, I don't want to discount the other ways that that we use for deeper thinking tasks when you're doing one of those volume tasks and the kids have been grinding at it for 15 minutes and there's some really cool ways to think about how we can think about this as additive and other groups are thinking about it as subtractive and so on and so forth and to point out those differences. But it's it's a kind of consolidation that works really well in those fast moving, thin slicing activities. And, I, and teachers have really been looking for that so, and it's really turning out to be very effective. Then we go to the meaningful notes. And here we're talking about something that is like brand new. So you are aware, you're, you're, you're aware of all the work that was in the meaningful notes in the book. And then you were also aware of the development I was working on around stages that we can do the meaningful notes at starting at stage one, where there's some errors and they got to correct them. And then stage two where there aren't errors, but they got to create their own. We're giving them sentence stems and examples to work through. And stage three, where they got to pick their own um, examples. And stage four, where, and so on and so forth. There's these stages. And I've talked about that on several different podcasts and so on. And and, um, that stage one was really effective all the way down to grade two. But still, it's a time-consuming thing. And one of the things that we were seeing among students when we were doing those meaningful notes, even no matter how well we structured it, was not everyone had equal access, right? Like there was about 20 to 30 to 40% of kids who wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't write any meaningful notes for themselves. And compared to the to how ineffective the note making or note taking was in a sort of I write, you write situation, 20% of kids not writing notes at all and 80% writing them for the right reason seemed like a pretty accessible loss, so to speak. But but we're still talking about inequities here, right? When when 20% of the students are walking out of the room not having had an opportunity to to consolidate their learning through a meaningful note and they don't have a record, um, there's a problem with that. And yet everything we tried, we couldn't seem to improve on that. Right, because there was still this huge element of agency involved in students' meaningful note making, and this was something that had been bothering me for a long time. So I went back to one of the frameworks that was in the book, which is that one where the page is sort of divided into four, and there's sort of different things in every quadrant that the students were supposed to do, and it was some teachers really liked that when we were starting out, but it was lacking some really key stuff that was going to make it more accessible to more students. So jumping off of that, started playing with a slightly different structure of that, that combined some of the best of everything that we had going so far. So the way it works is after the consolidation, and and we have tried this, and I have tried this in 22 different classrooms in the last six weeks. And it has landed every single time for every single student. So 
the way it works, yeah, <laughs> do the math on that. <laughs> so the way it works is this: um, after the consolidation, we send we we send them to the whiteboard, or we're still at the whiteboard. And what I do is I draw on the on the whiteboard that I'm working at. I take the board, I divide it into four quadrants, and I say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do some meaningful notes in quadrant one. You're gonna complete this example and. An example is written up with some blanks, right? Some boxes for them to fill in. Whatever it is that you're working on that day. It's a very sort of guided structured setup. So it's if we're if we're graphing, if we're looking for solving the X and Y coordinates, it would be a the XY axis are drawn, a line is drawn intersecting it. Um, there may be no equation written, but there are some some boxes placed for the coordinates of the X and Y intercept, plus maybe some other points on the graph. And they just have to fill it in. They just have to put some coordinates on there. But the key here is that they're recognizing that on the Y coordinate, the X is zero, and on the X coordinate, the Y is zero, and they're filling that in. So it's a very sort of fill-in-the-blank structure. And this is the quadrant that's in the top left-hand corner, okay, which for this purpose, we'll talk, call quadrant one, which is driving those of you who teach coordinate geometry <laughs> or bananas. But we don't have to actually call it coordinate one, but this is how the kid's mind works, right? It starts in the top left-hand corner, kind of goes clockwise. So it starts there. Quadrant two is an example, but we give them the example. We, we write up the example. This is what we want. Here's the example. We want you to turn it into a worked example to get a solution. Quadrant number three, you get to pick your own example. But we may specify what type of example it has to be. Like we may say it has to be an example where, um, like we might draw up a, a, a little graph, we might put up a little, a little example of what the solution should look like or something. Like So just so they have some direction, that they're not supposed to pick something that's completely out of left field um, we want you to do an example here, but you get to choose the example, but we're looking for the final solution to be factored form or to be in general form or to be the equation of a line or whatever. We're, we're specifying what we want the answer to the form of the answer so that they have to pick an example that makes it get to there. And then the fourth quadrant, which is the bottom left-hand corner is the tips and tricks quadrant or things to remember, depending on which kind of language you'd like. So it's the, the fourth quadrant is what are the things to remember, the tips and tricks. And then they, we send them back to the boards and they create this these notes on the whiteboards in their group of three. And they get access to as many markers as they want. So the kids, <laughs> you wouldn't believe how it re-energizes a room. Like you could see the kids energy waning a bit. And when we send them back to the boards, it's just like the energy is up. The kids are working. They're discussing what examples they're going to do. And they're they're filling in the really structured one at the beginning. They're getting onto the first example. They're debating what the second example should be. They're really having deep conversations about what the tip, tips and tricks are or the things to remember. And they'll write things like, uh, always do the X first or... Um, the x-intercept has the y-coordinate as zero. Like these are things that they have now decided are the things that are important to remember coming out of today's activity. And that's it. We're done. Everybody has notes. So we can take pictures of it. We can post it. They can take their own pictures. Um, in classrooms where we were able to experiment it for multiple days in a row, by day three, we got to the point where after they had done that, we would say to the students, okay, now you can sit down and make your own on paper. And what was interesting about that was how they didn't always just recreate the one they had done as a group. It was like, okay, the first quadrant and the second quadrant was the same for everybody. But the third quadrant, they're looking around the room going, oh, I like the example that group chose. And then for the things to remember, tips and tricks, they're looking around going, I like what they wrote. And I like what they wrote. And I like that part. And so they're stealing from the best of in the rooms to produce that fourth quadrant. Our thought was originally that stage three of that would be that we're going to get to a point where we can just say, okay, now sit down and do it on your own. But I think then we're back to that 20% not doing anything, but where we do it as a group, 
Now do it on your own. We're still getting 100% of kids do, mm-hmm. right? Like 100% of kids got to participate, which is a, and it's a consolidating activity. Mm-hmm. And they walk out of the room with something. Yeah. And you could probably have grade ones do that. Maybe even kindergartners by the end of the year. Just Who wonder, hmm, maybe there's someone around that you know can play with to try that out. Math next year or so. There we go. Watch out. It's <laughs> happening. Anyway, that's a really exciting development. It's, again, it, it meets this need that teachers are saying, like, I just, it's so, I can't get it done. I, can't, I don't have time. It takes too long. Not everyone's doing it. it kids don't know what to write. And it has that sort of nice balance between the structure, which is in the first quadrant, to the third quadrant, where they're entirely choosing their own, to the fourth quadrant, where they are writing in words and articulating what they feel is important. And some of the photographs we have from these things are just gorgeous, like what the kids are producing. Yeah. So I like the way you're, you're saying how the thinking classroom has evolved over the years and getting more better, if I can use that as a term. But so as how people have used it maybe incorrectly or, or how are people getting it wrong? Has that evolved? Or is it still kind of the same in or over? Are people making better mistakes or worse mistakes? Or what oh, do you know on that? <laughs> I try not to judge. I But I will say this. I think the reason it's evolving right now is because initially the research was done in classrooms where thinking classrooms wasn't really being implemented yet, right? Like it was like, okay, we're going to try these things. We're going to try these things. We're going to try these things. But now we're in classrooms where the teacher's doing thinking classrooms every lesson. And when when you try to experiment with something like meaningful notes in a different way, it just lands differently than when you're trying to experiment with meaningful notes in a class of students who aren't familiar with it. Right. So it's almost become like the experimental space is different now. It's more fertile in a way. I think that's why we're seeing some evolution and so on. And it sort of really fits this need that teachers have really been thirsting for, which is a way to give more students access to that experience of note making. That's great. I'm excited to share that with some teachers, maybe even this week still. So we'll have some conversations about that for sure. Um, well, you know, well, I had this I had this one experience where we did it in a classroom. I was co-teaching a lesson in a classroom in Hawaii, and we did it, and there was teachers who were observing, and then we had a debrief at the end of the day, and one teacher walked out of that lesson and walked into his classroom and did it like immediately and came back into the debrief with photos saying like, unbelievable, what a difference it made. Wow. And it seems, it seems accessible. It doesn't seem like it's a lot of extra work too, to get it going. In some ways it's actually maybe simpler. Yeah. And again, it just, it's fast. It doesn't take a long time. The one thing we have learned is it has to be dynamic. You can't, and teachers are maybe not going to love this part, but (laughs) pre, pre preparing it doesn't seem to work. Like you can anticipate. But the, it really has to be based on where the lesson got to that day. Yes, I understand like that completely because in my four or five class, I've done like notes and I'm like, this isn't hitting great. Why isn't yeah. this? But I came up with a like an example beforehand. But yeah, you're right. It's like dynamic and we can't expect what's going to happen. Yeah. We know what's going to happen. Yeah. The nice thing is that the third and fourth quadrant is they're creating. So it's just, you just have to sort of, what do you want that really structured note at the beginning to look like? And you can anticipate that. And what do you want the first example to look like? And you can pretty much anticipate that, but it's, it's sort of like, show them what you want it to look like, and then send them off to the whiteboards. And then of course we go into the, to the check your understanding questions. And we've been playing with mild, medium, and spicy for about a year now. And that makes such a big difference. Yeah, we've we found that that's really taken off with our teachers here, and their students seem to respond well to it. It's fantastic. Um, I'm thinking about thinking classrooms. There's a lot of moving pieces to it. A lot of little moves you can be doing as a teacher. Is there one thing that is very intentional, but maybe is often overlooked by teachers that is you know maybe seems small but has a huge impact in a thinking classroom? Oh yeah. So there's there is there's a whole bunch of them. I'm actually, for this Building Thinking Classroom Conference, one of the little talks I'm going to give is um, don't overlook the small stuff, right? Little things that make big differences and things that were intentional is the wrong word, but 
that that are are there for a reason. And the reason is that the research showed that it's more effective. I'll give you an, a really concrete example. So let's say we're doing a consolidation. And the consolidation is going to be one of those where we're going to do a gallery walk. And we're going to go look at some boards that I have blocked off and so on. Because it's that type of task. Um, the first move, which is often overlooked, but has been shown to be really, really important, is to pull everyone to the center of the room and to have a small conversation with them in the middle of the room. And so often I'm, I'm interacting with teachers who are like, they go straight from, okay, everyone come over here. And then, and then they're going, there's something wrong. Something's not working. And then I show them, well, let, let's call everyone to the middle of the room first. We'll pull everyone to the middle. We'll have a brief conversation and then we'll go look at the first board. And then it's like, oh, that made such a big difference. Right. And what kind of difference does it make? Well, it anonymizes all the work. It detaches ownership from the board. It gets students away from what they were doing and attention on the teacher. And they're like, oh, that's so good. I wish I was doing that all along. And then it's like, why wasn't that in the book? It is in the book. <laughs> um, it's it's, it's all there. <laughs> it's when you're reading the book the first time. You know, like, what is it that you're noticing in that chapter? You're going, oh, my goodness, I got to figure out how to how to sequence this. I got to figure out which ones to select and then sequence. And I got to seed some ideas and there's a lot going on. And then there's this paragraph that talks about the act, the, uh, detaching ownership. And it's like, that's not what you're remembering coming up through that chapter the first time. Right. And it's it's easy to overlook. Right. This idea of just pulling everyone together to begin with. Likewise, getting everyone on their feet when you're giving the instructions is easy to overlook because you're being bowled over by this idea that we should be more verbal than textual. Okay, wow, that's keeping my brain busy. And then I forgot to notice that other part. Um, and, and then there's also the idea of, and this one turns out to make an absolutely massive difference. Um, nobody ever gets to be done. So nobody ever gets to be done in a thinking classroom. And I'll give you a really concrete example of this. So a teacher in a workshop says to me, I'm, uh, I'm having a lot of trouble with students just copying from other board. And, I, and I'm like, you mean like they, they, they steal an idea from another board? No, they're copying like symbol by symbol, just completely copying. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting because we haven't really seen that at all in a thinking classroom since we learned to not let anybody be done, right? Because, and, and the teacher gets kind of quiet and I'm going like, you know, like we learned that if there's like a finite list of tasks and when they get through the, t the list, the students get to sit down, then we were incentivizing that sort of behavior. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, that's exactly what I'm doing, right? And this was one of the things we learned was if you allow students to be done it incentivizes a whole bunch of behaviors that are antithetical to thinking and learning, right? They start to copy from each other. Um, they, they don't care about everybody in the group understanding before moving on because there's a lot of incentives to getting through quickly rather than staying in the moment and really grappling with the learning and so on and so forth. So yeah, there's lots of these little things that, that actually turn out to make big differences. And they're easy to overlook mm -hmm. um, because that last one, for example, like just think about, we got 170 years of math teaching behind us that says, here's the list of questions I want you to do. Two things about that list. Number one, if you're finished, you get to be done. Number two, if you're not finished, that's homework, yeah. right? And it, yeah. and we got 170 years of that, this, of this pervasive culture of doneness. And then here comes thinking classrooms, which is like, oh, no one ever gets to be done. And it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. And it's it's so easy to overlook that. And then you move in, you, you sort of marry these two ideas of let's get them up working vertically on a sequence of tasks. But that sequence of tasks has exactly eight questions in it. And oh, by the way, I'll tell the students that there's eight. In fact, maybe I'll just give them the whole list up front. And then because that's that's an efficiency move, it saves a lot of work on my part. And all of these things end up being really antithetical to creating that, that culture that we want in the thinking classroom. Mm -hmm.
much. Yeah. So I guess to go along with your uh, nuances, something th- that I find is quite nuanced is the idea, like when to help a student, like, so between knowing whether something is productive struggle versus like outright frustration, like, do you have any, and like, I realize you will tell me, just know you're like some students like Megan and blah, 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 blah. But I want to know, like, is there something I can actually look out for? like visually to be like oh like this person's frustrated versus just having some productive struggle because i'm the first to be like oh no help my little like i'm kinders right so i want to know okay right so let's talk about productive struggle first right so productive struggle is this oh just so wonderful we just we just (laughs) love productive struggle and all that learning that happens and it's just so it's just like a panacea and, you, and maybe you can tell that I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek in here. And and to be clear, I do highly value productive struggle, but the way it's been perpetuated is this belief that all we have to do is get students to struggle and it will be productive. And the reality is that that is not the most likely outcome, right? Like if, if you give the students something, give them struggle, the more likely outcome is that they give up. And long before they give up, they get frustrated and then there is this just this negative blowback, and this is problematic. Um, and we've actually found that that what is the difference between productive struggle and just struggle? Well, one of the main differences is that it turns out that productive struggle is a state much more than it is a trait. And what I mean by that is, and this is a term that's used in psychology all the time. So a, a, a trait is something that is something that's innate to the personality of the person. Not to say that it can't be changed, but it's just some somehow more stable, right? Versus a, a state is something that is just in the moment the circumstances have created it, right? So like you can meet someone who is by, by and large a grumpy individual. Think about that neighbor you were growing up that would always like scowling at the kids and wouldn't give back the Frisbee when it landed in their backyard. And that's a that's a trait versus a person who's just a little grumpy because they they missed lunch, right? Which is a state. So that productive struggle is much more of a state than it is a trait. Yes, we have students who are more persistent than other students, and but even the most persistent student will will give up under the wrong circumstances, and and even the most vulnerable student will persist under the right circumstances. So what are the circumstances? So what we found is when students meet challenge on the heels of success, they are more likely to enter into a state of productive struggle than if they meet challenge without having prior success. And, you know, the thin slicing and flow sort of sets that up naturally because what happens is by the students are always getting a little bit of challenge, but they're always having success. So by the time they hit, really hit that really challenging question, they've had five or six successes in their back pocket. So that that really changes the state in which they're in. It creates a state where they're much more likely to enter into a state of productive struggle. Um, and you can see that. So the first indicator is, well, have they had prior successes? And if they've had prior successes, they're more likely to be in a state of productive struggle than just struggle. If they haven't had prior successes, then we need to give them some successes first. So this is much more preemptive than it is actually diagnostic. Um, The next thing is when you're standing there watching them, is there a sense that there is a a loss of momentum? So one of the things we really see in a thin slicing lesson all the time is that there's a lot of momentum, right? The kids have this energy and there's this speed. And I don't mean that it's a race, but there is a certain pace at which they're moving. And, and you can feel the momentum, but if all of it, has the momentum been broken and has it been broken in a way where it feels like we're not going to get it back. And you can, you can kind of sense that, that there's a momentum shift in the room. And often it's because we got the order wrong of the questions, or we threw something at them that had two changes when it should have only been one, or maybe we just created a question by accident that doesn't have an answer or whatever. There's been something <laughs> that, that, oh yeah. It's happened so many times where we come out of a lesson, we're like, whew, that number eight, that was a bad idea, right? (laughs) Like either we just remove it completely or we put it at the end or whatever. I don't know what we were thinking. Um, 
but it just breaks that momentum. And then it's, we got to, we, we recognize that there's frustration. Other than that, it physically, it just exudes differently, right? One of the ways to really think about it is this. So when is, when does frustration set in? So frustration sets in when a student has been standing still for a long time and they've run out of resources, right? So think about a student who is having resources available to them. So a, a student is stuck, but the group is keeping moving. So, okay, this is good because the group, is, and as long as there's empathy there, the group is keeping them moving. Um, a group is stuck, but they haven't tried everything yet, right? They, 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 they just got stuck, um, but they haven't tried adding by tens. They haven't tried uh, skip counting. They haven't tried uh, going to the graphing calculator. They haven't tried looking at the group next door yet. Like there's still resources to tap into. And maybe all we need to do is remind them to, to tap into some resources. Um, but when you sense, okay, they've tried all of that. They've tried all of the tricks. They've gotten their graphing calculator. They've looked at the groups around them. They're not moving. And now we can just feel that the momentum is waning. There isn't any forward motion and there aren't any more resources to tap into, right? Then, then we need to step in. And when we step in, we don't have to give it all away. We could just step in and say, you should look at what number five is doing. Or have you tried working backward? Or just step in and circle a number. I would start with this one right here. Start right there. And then step back and see how well it lands, right? Like, because we can always come back in. And I think this is one of the differences between a hint that you give when the students have a lot of momentum and a hint that you give when you feel that that frustration is really setting in. Um, when you give a hint to a group where you're sensing frustration is setting in, pay close attention to what happens after you step away, right? Keep an eye on it because you need to step back in. Right? Like me is if this loosens it and they're going great. If it doesn't, you need to step back in and give more. And I think this is one of the mistakes that we often make is we give a hint and we walk away. And that's great if the student, if if you're just adding to the resources or if they had just exhausted resources, they still had momentum. But when a group is just completely standing still and getting frustrated, just make sure that you see how well that that hint lands. Later, right? Yeah, just step away. Yes, Sarah. Yeah, like, you know, you're, you're visiting group four, you give them the hint, you go on to group six, but the next stop is you're going back to group four. Kind of a, a follow-up question to that would be like, so if a student maybe has to like algorithmic knowledge, like, like long division, and they're used to, you know, doing it in a certain way, and they're not being creative with their thinking. Um, how do we try to get kids to be creative with their math a little bit more, especially if it goes, well, this isn't the way you do math type of thing. <laughs> All right. I'll give you an example of this. So there was a doctoral student at SFU who did a survey on hundreds of undergraduate students. And I think the question she asked them was, um, what is three and a quarter plus two? It was something like that. And it was like 96% of the students turned three and a quarter into an improper fraction and turned two into an improper fraction and then found a common denominator, added them together, turned the improper fraction back into a proper fraction and reduced to get five and a quarter. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and there's, a, there's a perfect example of them using a mathematical algorithm exactly right to to produce an answer that could have been achieved in a different way. And, you know, one of the things that we we often used to talk about in the good old days when calculators were the bane of math education, right? Oh, calculators. Wow. Like, I remember the good old days when we had, right? Like, yeah, the calculator. And, and now we got you know, we have Wolfram Alpha and Photomath and ChatGPT and like worrying about a calculator. We have graphing calculator and Desmos on cell phone. But one of the things that we often talked about in math education around calculators was what kids had to learn to do with a calculator was it's not how to use it, but when to use it. And, and I think the same is true of 
algorithmic, algorithmic mathematics is to understand when is it more efficient to do that and when is it more efficient to do something else, right? Another nice example in coming back to fractions is the the number of students who, when they're subtracting mixed fractions, aren't just decomposing the one. Like just like, you know, if you have eight and a quarter and you're subtracting three and five eighths, do we really need to turn everything into improper fractions or can we just turn that eight and a quarter into seven and five quarters, right? Like this sort of idea. Like, when is it appropriate to do that? And I don't want to necessarily say that that's creative, but I would say that that's flexible. And and I think the more students have experiences with these sorts of things, of playing with coming up with more than one solution. And, and, and one of the ways that we used to do this in elementary school all the time was, was questions where it's like, um, seven plus eight is 15. Give me three reasons why. Right, as opposed to one reason why. So, pushing at this idea that we want you to come up with, and you know, we've been doing this in elementary for a long time. We want to see something arithmetic. We want to see something written. We want to see something drawn. We want to see, right? We want we want all these different representations. But that's just sort of the the product of all that. The the reason we want to do that is we want students to develop flexibility, right? Because flexibility means that they're not always going to go to the same thing for every type of question. Some questions are going to invoke a different behavior. And we need that. They need to have that flexibility. That makes 10% sense. Yeah. Peter, you mentioned calculators and, you know, how that was back in the day. Um, Right now we're going through a version of that, right? With ChatGPT, Google Bard, all these AI things. How do you see the emergence of those tools impacting not only just math classrooms, but thinking classrooms in, in particular. Do you have any concerns or any tips for teachers as they navigate these conversations? This is just a fad. If we can just hold out for another 18 to 24 months, this will pass us by, I'm sure. <laughs> this technology thing, it's just a phase. <laughs> um, I say tongue in cheek. Um, you know, I think we had our, I think we had our crisis in math. When Wolf, Wolfram Alpha came out and Photomath, I think that was our chat GPT moment. When we realized that we have to think differently about what sort of productive outputs we could ask students to do independently with the aid of technology, right? And we had to grapple with that. We had to grapple with the idea that Wolfram Alpha is actually going to not just provide an answer, but going to provide the fully worked solution that a student could put down on their, on their homework and show it as if they did it and so on and so forth. Um, I don't think chat GPT necessarily gives us more, more opportunities for students to do things in a sort of cheating way than, than Wolfram Alpha gave us. Um, I think that the humanities teachers are freaking out a little bit right now, uh, because this is their photo math moment, but what does it, what does it do for a thinking classroom? I don't necessarily see that it it's being such a big problem. ChatGPT is just another resource, right? And if you have a group who's using ChatGPT or any sort of AI to to solve a problem at the whiteboard and putting down the solution, a teacher's going to see that happen. And and they're going to enter into that space and they're going to have a conversation. And, and if, a, if a group of students use some sort of AI and learned it, then what's yeah. the problem? Great. But if they did use it, if they just used it to produce an answer, well, the teacher's going to step in and say, okay, well, okay, but where's the learning? Where's the understanding? Where's the meaning making? Let's see you do one without the technology. Because the goal here is not to get the answer. The answer is just a byproduct, right? And, and I think students realize that in a thinking classroom relatively quickly. And again, let's use it as a, as a tool. If students are using it as a tool to further their understanding, and it, let's say they're, they're stuck, they don't understand something, right? They don't understand why, for example, in a, in a graph that the y equals x minus 3 in brackets all squared plus 2. Why does a minus 3 move it to the right, but the plus 2 moves it up? Why does a minus 3 not move it to the left? Like, if a student types into the AI, 
this question and the question, and it comes back with an answer explaining it. And the student goes, oh, I get it. That's awesome. That's just a fourth member of the group. <laughs> yeah, expand. The fourth, the fourth beetle. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just another resource to, to help with the meaning making. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would say one of my favorite parts about Thinking Classroom is that, like, although the math is at the forefront, I see it almost secondary because there's so many other soft skills being taught, right? Like problem solving, communication, reasoning, argumenting. Argumenting, that's not a word. <laughs> it's fine. Though. We're just going to walk right past that's not a big deal. <laughs> um, however, what, like, what would you say to somebody who's like still struggling with those rubrics in terms of the, I think it's like perseverance, willingness yeah. to, to take risks, uh, collaboration. Like, what do you say to somebody who's tried them a few times because they're trying to build in like this culture and they're just still not really hitting? Like, is there any quick and dirty tips and tricks? Oh, phew. Um, by and large, we're seeing those land. So, okay, if it's not landing, let's let's do a little deeper conversation as to why that's not hitting so well. Number one, do you got too many things in there? Number two, who wrote it? Who created the rubric? Did you co-construct it? Like, did you really co-construct it? Was it was it based on student input? Was it based on student input after a real meaningful experience where? they weren't persevering or they weren't taking risks or they weren't communicating well, was there, is, is this a product of, of a phenomenon where the students actually had input and understood what the input was about and so on. When all those things are in place, usually it hits. It may not hit for everybody, but you know, you could have a student who's going, well, this doesn't count for anything. So who cares? But, but by and large, that's not what we're seeing. So I would, I would want to understand a little bit more about the culture of what's going on in the room, because if that's not making a contribution, there's something else that's happening there. Yeah. Or um, like potentially maybe somebody's bringing them in too soon, right? Because it comes in like the third toolkit, right? It comes in the fourth, but we're actually yeah. seeing now that it, once we have, once a teacher's comfortable with the thinking classroom, that some teachers are starting to implement it in the second toolkit with success. But you can't do it in the first. Like you got to get it going and you got to get some culture happening and so on. But we're seeing that it can be moved up, but it's not the first toolkit. Uh -huh. Yeah. Like the purpose, the purpose is not, it's not a compliance tool. It's not a tool for compliance. So if, if we're trying to use it as a way to force a compliance, then it's not, it's not working as well. Probably it, what it is, a, it's a feedback tool to help students give some introspection and some feedback on how they're behaving. And I was in a classroom where a teacher was using this midway. It was really interesting to see. So the kids were working and then halfway through, partway through the lesson, she would just go away, go ahead. And she actually, no, the way it started was at the beginning of the lesson, every student went and picked up a resource package a whiteboard marker, an eraser, like the groups were, they were very well routinized. And one of the things they picked up was a rubric for the day. Then they went to their whiteboards and they put up the rubric with a magnet. They put up the resource package with a magnet. The resource package had conversion charts and stuff like that. And then they got to work on their first task and they were working, working, working. And at some point in the lesson, the teacher walked around and gave every group just a highlighter. And what that was, that giving the highlighter was a signal to the students that, okay, when you have a moment, maybe not right, don't interrupt your flow right now, but when you get through this task, do a self-check. As a group, stop, self-evaluate, how are you doing as a group? And they would do the self-evaluation with whatever color highlighter the teacher gave. And then she would collect those highlighters. And then later on in the lesson, she'd come around and give them a, a highlighter again, but a different color this time. And then at the end of the lesson, they would do it again. And it was really interesting to see, like if she's giving this highlighter out of the 20, 25 minute mark, how much better the, the collaboration in the groups was after the, the, that self-check-in. Um, it's not a compliance tool, right? It's not behaving like a compliance tool. It's behaving like a introspective, reflective feedback tool. Yeah, that's really cool. Like too, because I feel like there are lots of uh, students who, after they finish the like rubric, are like, "Oh, you know, like I like wish like we could try again, right?" 
Yeah. And they've thought about it. And like, so like, that's a really interesting idea to do it halfway through. Yeah. Just to change gears a little bit. Uh, we were all up at our some conference here in Saskatchewan not that long ago. And we had a couple of amazing keynotes. We had Jeff Crowell, he was talking about necessary conditions and our own Saskatchewan's Nat Banting and lots of amazing things with that. There's a lot of great stuff going on. Is there something that uh, you've come across lately that you find is like, whoa, that's really cool or you know, something you'd like to learn more about in the mathematical world out there? Yeah. So if I, basically your question is point, point, point you in a direction of somewhere you should be looking um, as to what's, what's out there. First of all, I think there's just amazing stuff out there. Like every time I go to a conference and I've been going to a lot lately, there's just so many presenters that are, that are amazing. Um, and you mentioned some already. Uh, the one that's often overlooked that I would direct your attention to is Pamela Sita and her book, Choosing to See, is really, really interesting. It's about diversity and inclusion and, and some of the things that I think everybody in Canada and the U.S. are working on right now. And she is, her, her work is starting to gain a lot of traction but uh, it's uh, it's something that I would certainly take a look at if I were you. Thank you. That's great. I'm not familiar with that, so I'm going to be looking that up as soon as we wrap up today. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, just talking about other things that are happening, one of the things I'm kind of wondering about, is there any emerging new ideas that we haven't talked about today from thinking classrooms or areas that you're hoping to explore further in the next few years or hope maybe someone else will dive into? Like what, what do you see as being next in thinking classrooms in the progression of this evolving framework? Um, well, certainly transcending mathematics is, is, is something that is, is happening a lot. And I've actually done a lot of exciting work on that in the last six months around what building thinking classrooms looks cross-curricular. And, and I'm not going to get into that other than to say that one of the ways I'm dealing with it is I've stopped thinking about it as cross-curricular and I now think about it as what does thinking classroom look like in different learning activities that we expose students to. And there are six learning activities that we expose students to in school. Um, six good ones. Let's just hear that. Um, there's other learning activities we expose students to or activities we expose students to that I would not say are a great learning activity. But just busy. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but um, six learning activities and and how a topic like language arts is actually made up of a collection of these, as is mathematics, as is social studies. So thinking about it as learning activities rather than subjects. And there's certainly a lot of work to be done in that area by myself and others. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about thinking classrooms is the way things are are put onto us that we're not intended to at the beginning to begin with. So, you know, the work of looking at thinking classrooms as a high impact practice for equity and trying to understand more deeply why that is looking at building thinking classrooms as a opportunity for decolonizing Megan mm -hmm. as trauma informed pedagogy, like Sophie's doing, um, there's just so many different ways of building thinking classrooms is just a pedagogy. It's, it's a tool, it's a vehicle through which other things can be achieved. And, and I'm loving that other people are picking up that challenge and, and pursuing it. So, and then moving thinking classrooms into other contexts, like how would, how is it apply in, in adult learning? How does it, how does it work in, the corporate world, how does it work in, in any sort of setting where, where learning needs to happen? Yeah, my um, good friend, Hannah, she teaches at um, Sask Polytech and she is one of their like coding instructors and she yeah. is listening to the podcast religiously and she can't wait to put like that in, in the fall. So shout out to Hannah. Nice. So anyway, there's there's lots of different places that this can go is, is my suspicion. And, and what I like the most is that other people are carrying the charge for that because I don't have time to do it all. <laughs> Come on, Peter. 
24 hours in hey, every day. Got a clone? Yeah. <laughs> Only 24 hours. <laughs> One question I'm curious about, Peter, and this is maybe more of a fun question. We know that thinking classrooms isn't just about a task, right? We talk about it's not about the task. Um, but despite that, do you have any favorite tasks you've been using lately? Maybe ones that people haven't heard of or you'd encourage people to try out? Oh, favorites lately. Um, every time I go into a classroom, we make up new ones for whatever it is we're doing. And when I'm working with younger kids, one of my favorite ones to use is there's actually a, a, a copy of it in the book. You know, there's the next door shapes. So there's two triangles, two squares, two circles, and then there's a bunch of clues, right? That the, the pink one has three sides and so on. Um, well, I created a whole sequence of tasks, a thin slice version of that. And when I go into classrooms, like elementary classrooms, we'll, we'll sometimes do that as a, as a first exposure to building thinking classrooms. And oh my goodness, the kids are just loving it. And then they get to make their own. And then they get to swap them with other groups and they're having such a good time with that. Um, so that's one of my favorite ones to use with young children when I'm going into a classroom that has never done building thinking classrooms before. And when I'm working with older kids, I love doing anything that is that is thin slicing in a way that that gets them to move their understanding forward great amounts because there's just this excitement and this energy where they they come out the other end feeling like I can't believe we just did all that and we 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 got it and we were able to do it so you know we've had some really fun ones where I actually took a group of great a six seven split class through the entire sequence of factoring quadratics in 45 minutes because the teacher wanted me to challenge them so we did a great 10 topic with great six sevens and they had no problem um, we had a really nice one for trig where we took students deep into doing a whole bunch of solving trig scenarios and solving for an angle, solving for a missing side, using only tangent and Pythagorean theorem and, and, you know, them really feeling capable and competent at the end of that. Other than that, um, my favorite sort of fun non-curricular Thinking task these days is, you know, the the birthday cake one. Which, not the one that's in the book, but you've you've been part of that one, Kyle, many yeah. times, I think, yeah. which is uh, how do you share a square cake between five kids so that everybody gets the same amount of cake and the same amount of icing? Yeah, I used that one recently at a conference I presented at, and about 45 minutes in, everyone was about to kill me. But uh, it, was, it was a good task because it's very accessible. Uh, oh, yeah. But there's some depth there that you can really play with. Oh, yeah. So I would guess this is my final question, I suppose. Like, what is next for the Thinking Classroom? What is what is on the horizon? On the horizon? Okay, so what's next? Um, well, we got, there's two books coming out. One with you, Megan, the first one, Task for the Thinking Classrooms, K to 5. Oh, yeah. And then shortly after that one, uh, a 6 to 12 task book as well. Um and that's that's exciting when it'll come out. You know, people have been hungry for that. It's it's sort of this strange book that I'm that we're writing. It, it's a book that I feel that nobody needs, but everybody wants. <laughs> and yeah, um, perfect example. Yeah, it's a perfect description. <laughs> and then after that, the other thing that's that's exciting is that there's going to be a, a sort of a it's, handbook is the wrong idea, but sort of a, a a more hands-on guide, sort of an on-your-feet guide that is going to come out, which is going to have a whole bunch of embedded video that is all being filmed in in Regina what? in October. Is... Uh, yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just going to be one of these things where a teacher can go into a classroom and sort of just before they go in, they can kind of review, okay, what is it? What is it I'm doing today? I can look at a QR code. I can pull out the video. I can watch it. I can see, okay, that's what I'm aiming for. That's the vision. Here's some pointers. Here's some tips, uh, things to remember. That sort of just really fine-tuned ways to help a teacher really just implement. Nuanced, right? Yeah. I love it. And I love that it's continuing to grow. And we're really excited to bring you back to Regina 
from that on to work with our teachers and just to connect further. Um, just looking at the clock here, we've kept you for a good hour here or so. I think it's a safe place to wrap up. Um, is there anything you'd like to add as we wrap up, Peter? Anything you want to share with anyone who might be listening to this today? I think the I think the message to remember is this, that building thinking classroom isn't some dan choreographed dance that you need to master, right? Building thinking classroom is a problem to solve. And, and the way we solve any problem in a thinking classroom is how you solve thinking classrooms. You find some other people, talk about it, you know, work your way through it, try some stuff, reflect on how it went, keep trying. It's, it's, a, it's about just trying to solve that problem, just trying to find how to make it work for you in your context, as opposed to just trying to always go back to this idea that it's a choreographed dance, that, that only Peter knows the choreography for, because that's not how it works. Geez, this is our second date. I didn't even get to ask you about assessment, but maybe we'll have to have another. Uh, we'll have to get you on another podcast for that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe episode like twenty. Yeah, <laughs> might take twenty episodes. Actually, that's great, Peter. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Take care, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks you bet. Thanks so much. And we'll see you soon. Yes, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Think Thank Thunk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode. And as always, keep thinking, keep thinking, and keep thunking.